your words today. Please give us your words today. Help me move out of the way, and you do what you do best. Speak to your people. We love to hear from you. Make us ready listeners. Not to a preacher, but to you. We ask this in the name of Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. So I've been convicted, as I looked at this, convinced that this passage seems to talk about a reservoir and a river. And I like reservoir because it sounds kind of Frenchy. And it has an R at the beginning, related to like a lake. So we're going to talk about a reservoir and a river today. <clears throat> a few verses is all we're, and we're going to punch through these things. You're going to go, wow, God spoke, and then you're going to be amazed and excited about what God is doing in your life. So let's jump right in. The reservoir. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 that Norm wrote says this. Hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. It says, let us hold fast. That is one Greek word. It is a word that is in an active tense and means that we continue to do that. Let us hold fast. We're holding on for dear life. Eddie Hoekstra told me about the... Uh, uh, he's on the teaching team, about sailors, Dutch sailors. They used to write on their knuckles, tattoo on their knuckles, hold fast. So you may imagine these old salty guys. Some of them, they look like guys here. Salty old Dutch guys holding on there in the gale wind, holding on to those ropes, and they're pulling in and trying to secure the, the wind-filled sails. I couldn't think of what the word was. Sails. And you can imagine, and they could see the words, hold fast. That's kind of the sense. Not like, hey, can you hold my coffee? Yeah. Hold fast is something that we're doing actively, and we're doing continually. Hold fast to what? The confession of our hope. The confession is the, the statement really the essence of all that we believe. I believe this is like a reservoir. All that we believe is all that God has poured into our lives. And in faith, we have this giant reservoir of the blessings of God, the love, the work, the forgiveness of God in our lives. And we are this cavernous, resource of a reservoir. It says that it is a confession of hope. Hope in the Bible isn't like I wish. Hope is something that we are sure of. We may not see it yet, but we are sure of it. And if we needed any extra help with how we are to hold on, it says without wavering. You can imagine this salty old sailor holding on, firm, pulling, getting that rope secured. That is what 
we hold on to is our very confession of hope, what we believe, what is the essence of our faith. But yet, just like a reservoir, we need a source. No reservoir is a reservoir without a river or two that feeds into it. And we have a source that's very important. In this passage, we actually have three let us commands. We are looking at the last two. The first one comes earlier in this passage. Our passage that would be the previous, the context, starts in verse 19. It says, therefore, brothers, because of what comes before that passage, which is that Christ is the greater sacrifice once for all. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way that he opened us through the curtain that is, his, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, here's the first let us, let us draw near. He is the source of our confession. He is the reason this confession is a confession of hope. And just like a reservoir is filled by those rivers, he is filled our reservoir with his love and grace and power and essence to be able to do and to be what God wants us to be. Now, unless we get it wrong, we could think that a confession is just like what we might call the Statement of what we believe, like a, a creed or something, like the Apostles' Creed or the Belgic Confession. I have a set of beliefs that that's what I believe. And so therefore, I am a Christian because I have this set of beliefs. Not necessarily untrue, we do have beliefs. We do believe in the creeds. It's just not enough. Look at the end of the verse 23. It says, for he who promised is faithful. A creed does not promise anything. A, uh, a promise is between people. And this person named he is referring to Jesus. Jesus is the one who promised and is what? Faithful. This is not a set of beliefs that we hold to that makes us the Christians we think we should be. It is relational that this verse is talking about. It is about his relationship with us. And he is the one who holds. And he is the one who is faithful. I'm reading a book. I don't recommend it. 
How do you say, I've learned some stuff in seminary I'd like to use. It's a tush kicker. Did you get the seminary? No, I didn't get it. It's by Dallas Willard, and it's called The Divine Conspiracy. I really do recommend it, but it is very, very challenging. What he has taught me in the beginning part of the book is that a lot of times, and this is challenging to me, that what we believe as Christians and what we tout as what Christianity is and what we <laughs> preach as preachers sometimes are really a gospel of sin management. That I need to get saved so I have my sins forgiven. Not untrue. I need to get the heaven barcode in my heart so that when I go to heaven, the heaven barcode reader reads it and lets me in. You know all the jokes about going to see St. Peter? Nope. He's just going to have a scanner. I get the barcode, I'm in. You can't really tell anybody is a Christian because you can't see the invisible barcode. And then so Christianity kind of gets boiled down to, okay, I've got to do the right stuff and try to avoid the wrong stuff because I'm a Christian and that's what I think Christians should do. And we spend all of our time thinking about that. We think they boil the gospel down as Jesus saved me from my sins. Now, everything I said in the last few seconds, minutes, is true. It's not enough. Imagine if I related to my wife by sin management. What would I do? I'd say, okay, 39 years ago, I made a promise to be, to be my one and only. I can't go around chasing girls. I got to avoid that. I said I would be nice and kind and love. What's that? What's that? Okay, I got to do some nice stuff to her so she doesn't get mad. And I got to try to do the bad, not do the bad stuff so I don't tick her off. You don't know this, you don't want to tick off Lisa. Okay? So I'm doing these things. I'm not doing these things. Oh, I got to get her flowers every once in a while so I don't have to sleep on the couch. What kind of relationship would that be like? Somebody's like, that's pretty good. I don't even do the flower thing. <laughs> That'd be boring. Stupid. It'd be passion zeroville, right? I don't love Lisa that way. I love her because she's the best woman on the planet. She is a my foxy lady. I love her like the wind. And we're passionate. And here, get this. When I do the stuff I'm not supposed to do, then it introduces a thing called, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. And it makes our relationship better. Not that I would do a lot of those things, probably be in trouble a lot. But that's kind of, I'm sorry, but we boiled our, our relationship with Jesus down to kind of sin management, haven't we? We know how to love one another relatively well, right? But that's not what our relationship with Christ is. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a, a little quote that I want to read to you. He's one of my favorite authors. And he talks about these pious people, people who are really good at not doing the bad stuff and doing the good stuff. We'll call them pious. He says in this quote, I want to share with you. The fact is that we are sinners. But it is the grace of the gospel which is so hard for the pious to understand. That it confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner. A great, desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner that you are to the God who loves you. He does not want anything from you, a sacrifice, a work. He wants you alone. God has come to save the sinner, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. When I read that part, God wants you alone. I got to share that quote. Good for me. In fact, most of my preaching I preach to myself and you get to hear. I don't want sin management as the modus operandi in my faith. I want to know that God wants me alone. I can't change by my good behavior. I can't hurt by my bad behavior how much God loves me. And not this ethereal. He is passionate about being in relationship with you and with me. Warts and all. That is what a relationship with Christ is all about. There's a story in Luke chapter 7. Jesus goes to see Simon because he's invited to a meal who is a Pharisee. Talk about pious people. Pharisee were the ultimate pious people. They did all the right stuff and didn't do any of the wrong stuff. So he goes to a meal and this sinful woman, everybody seemed to know that this woman was sinful. She comes in and she cries and wipes Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears are washing his feet. He kisses his feet and anoints his feet with oil. And Simon says, in his mind, if this guy was a prophet, he'd surely know what, guy, what kind of woman this is. And then, this is definitely on the don't list. So Jesus, kind of figuring out what's going on, he says, Simon, I'd like to say something to you. Just go ahead. What if a, a master had two servants? One owed him a lot of money, one didn't owe him very much money, and he forgave both of them. Simon, which of the servants would love more? And Simon said, well, I, I suppose the one who has a greater debt forgiven. You're right, Jesus said. And he said, let me tell you about this woman. Verse 47 of Luke says this. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same will love little. You see, our only response is love. We don't like this fact, but almost every time we talk about the sinful woman, the tax collector who's beaten his breast, 
the woman that's trying to steal Jesus' power, the older or younger prodigal brother, is talking about us. We are desperate sinners who, is, who are desperately loved by the living God. He wants you alone, and our only response is love. That's the reservoir. That is the content of what we believe. It is a cavernous amount of of love and grace and power. And that's flown, poured, I don't know what that other word was, into our lives to fill our reservoir. But it doesn't stop there. Peter, who knows exactly the essence of what it's like to be, that God wants him alone, not, not his behavior. Said something that I want to read to you. Seems to help us with this passage. Second Peter chapter one verse eleven says, "For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ." He says, "The way to uh, the eternal uh, heaven has been richly provided for you." And you have entered the eternal kingdom of God. This love relationship is won and secured by Jesus Christ. And he wants you at his company to join a gathering of people called the church. The number one thing he wants you to join is his kingdom. And by the nature of you putting your faith in Jesus, you join that kingdom. And notice that's the kingdom of our Savior who loves us, redeemed us, has done all the work, and Lord. Jesus talked a lot about the kingdom of God, more than I can talk about today, but I want to talk about two aspects of the kingdom of God. One it has a king, and it's Jesus. Two, when he came on earth, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Not something I'll get to later, but at hand. Right here, right now. Part of the issue and challenge with having a faith that's sin management it's kind of the idea you can't tell anybody's a believer until they get to heaven, get the big old scan. Is that the way it's supposed to be? If the kingdom is at hand and we are a part of it, are we meant to be just a recipient? Filled up to the brim with all the goodness of God. Yeah, I think we're meant to be that way. We're supposed to remain that way. I want to talk a little bit about the river. Because it is not only the kingdom of our Savior who has saved us, but the kingdom of our Lord who leads us. Dallas Willard says it this way. He says that we should be 
apprenticing with Jesus. What does an apprentice do? If you're a welder, do they just draw pictures on how to weld? No. They show you how to weld, then you weld. And you do all the crummy welding that's under the building, and, and it's hard. And when you don't do it right, they take it out and do it again until you learn how to what? Weld. You follow the master craftsman. We are to apprentice with Jesus. And so not only are we to be the reservoir, the river flows out. Let's look at it, starting in verse 24. It goes on. The writer of Hebrews gives us the next let us statement. He says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Let us consider is one Greek word again. And guess what? It's active and ongoing, just like the first one. So we continue to think and consider and figure out how to stir one another up. That stir one another up is better translated provoke. Stir one another up says, oh, that's what I do in my coffee. I stir it up a little bit. Don't want to get too vigorous to spill on my tie. Now, this is a challenge. This is provoke. And then another uh, verse, Ephesians 6, 4, Paul challenges fathers not to provoke their children to anger. Not dads in this church, but other churches sometimes kind of push our kids, especially our, our, our sons, and they get ticked off. They go stomping out of the house or mad. We're not supposed to do that. That's provoke. This is, it's kind of like Bruce, Bruce Lee. You guys didn't watch kung fu movies? There's one kung fu movie, Bruce Lee, little dude. He fights Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And what does he do? He always does this. He gets his stance. You know, he got knocked back, but now he's getting ready. Puts his hands up. What happens? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar kicks him right here, and his foot's this big. Man, mad, provoked him, got him into action. That's the word. We always like, you know, we like these, oh, can I stir you up today? I don't know, feeling good. The word is to provoke, but provoke what? To get a big guy to kick you? Get somebody angry? No. Provoke you to love and good deeds. And I did a lot of studying on this love and good deeds thing, Greek and all that. Commentators, they say it sounds like we're supposed to love and do good deeds. I don't think we need 15,000 sentences on how to love people and what's good deeds, okay? Pretty much have a pretty good list, right? We're supposed to provoke each other to do that. Challenge each other to do that. My wife challenges me to love and good deeds. We'll be going long. We'll have a conversation. We're blah, 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 back and forth. And then she'll stop. and She'll say, I need to pray. Okay. No, I actually need to repent. 
Okay. Oh, stop sometimes, Lord, sorry for this words or deed or attitudes or actions, you know, whatever. I'm like, I might have been a part of that too. So I say, I stop. I repent. Just an attitude test. You ever around people like that? They're so, I was going to say annoying, but that would get me in trouble. They're challenging. Just by showing up around godly people, they challenge you, right? They do things like that. They, they say, I should have been more loving. I should have been more out there. Man, I, I, I get frustrated with my employees and get angry. Lord, give me peace. And we live differently. But we are to provoke. We are to challenge one another to love and good deeds. Then it goes on to... Verse 25, it says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. To see in this familiar passage that we're looking at today, that's what people focus on. But if we are filled as a reservoir from the Lord and we really understand the love relationship, the things that we apprentice with him in this verse make sense. How do you provoke somebody to love and good deeds when you're on the golf course? Well, never mind, I take that back. That's a really good place because they're always using foul language and stuff. But what if it's Sunday morning? Probably preaching in the choir here because you're here. But it says, not neglecting to meet together. That word neglecting means to abandon. A guy named Demas in 2 Timothy 4.12, Paul says, Demas, abandon me. Not neglecting means to abandon. God, that's kind of strong language. Don't go to church, you abandon. Maybe it's meant to be strong language. You see, this letter was probably written in the late A.D. 60s or early 70s. So a few decades after Jesus died and rose again, people are starting to not go to church. They had a lot of pressure on them. They were Jewish people in Rome that the Romans didn't like and the Jewish people didn't like. So they had nobody, and they were under pressure, and it could have been dangerous to be a Christian. Could have been they just... Didn't want to get out of bed on Sunday morning. They didn't want to go to church before they went to work because the week hadn't changed. We have subtle pressures on us. You know, the world no longer revolves around the church schedule. There are little league games on Sunday morning and practices. There are recitals. There are friends that don't think that even about church and want to invite you out for a round of golf. There are businesses, either we need to work or they're actually scheduling you to work. These are subtle pressure because we're not being challenged to die if we assemble with these people. 
but they are pressures nonetheless. You cannot stir one another up, challenge each other for good works and love if you are not with them. But instead of not meeting together, it ends with this. But encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day is capitalized, the day of Christ. You see, the first generation of Christians thought that they were the last generation of Christians. They thought Jesus was going to come right back. And now they're in a situation where decades have gone by. Some of the saints have died by martyrdom or have died just because of old age. And they're realizing this might take longer. And this hard life I will have to do. I may have to live my whole life this way. We need to encourage one another. And let's circle back to our little exercise at the beginning. But you thought I forgot about it. What did you think right after your goal? If you're like 90 plus people that I heard about in a study, it was a negative thought. Well, I'm not sure. It was a limiting thought. But... That's why you need to be around people because we all need encouragement. We need each other. Now, you might be the tough kind of guy that doesn't need anybody. You're just wrong. Scripture tells you. You need other people. And we need to learn how to build each other up. That's a strong word as well. It means to exhort. It means to challenge people in a loving way build up their faith. I did some training recently and I heard a, an account of a man. He was a CEO of a company or some kind of leader. It was years ago when they did Promise Keepers and he was at a Promise Keepers event and he was challenged to stop and notice people to love on them, not just be the CEO or whatever you do for a business. So that next Monday, he walks in the office, goes up the elevator, goes to his floor, heads for his office, but decides to stop in the first cubicle. And he does that, and he says, you're Bob, right? Yeah. Oh, hi. And he introduces himself. He, he knows he knows him, but they have some moments to chat. And I said, oh, I just thought I would get to know you a little bit better, Bob. I hope you have a good day at work today. Leaves. Goes to his office. Didn't think a lick of it. A few days later, Bob comes and knocks on the door and says, can I talk with you? And Bob says, okay, sure. Yeah, have a seat, Bob. He says, you don't know this. But Monday, when you stopped by to talk to me, that night I was going to go home and kill myself. Because I didn't think anybody But thank you, you saved my life. We don't know. We don't know what the person sitting next to you is feeling. We don't know how a smile or a going out of your way to introduce yourself or to say hi 
might do to that person. We don't know. There, there's a, a quiet desperation that we live under. And Pastor Logan started and says, there's an imposter syndrome that happens. We come to church and we kind of think maybe it's for all the other good people. Well, that guy's got his life together. Look at that lady. Man, she's got it The fact is, we're all in a, a quandary of life that sometimes it's up, a lot of times it's down. And if you live as a Christian, you will oftentimes get kind of worn out and beat up. So is it a river or a reservoir? Well, I'd like to just close with a couple of thoughts. First of all, be the reservoir. Be that. You cannot be it without connecting to the source. Maybe you hear these words and you feel very empty inside. You feel like they're talking about something that is not yours. Well, maybe it's time for you to step into a relationship with Jesus. To say yes to him. First chapter, John says to receive and to believe in him. Gives you a right to join the family. That's a simple story. I receive you, Jesus. I believe in you. Eternal Son of God. Hate it all. To remove every barrier so that you and I can have a, a loving friendship as a member of your kingdom. But maybe you made that step. To be the reservoir, you need to connect with him. I try to pray every day for my children that they would read the word and that they would pray. Connect with the source. We all need that. Connect. That's what fills our reservoir. So be the reservoir. I want to share a little bit of my life. I like knives. I have some knives here. Who else likes knives? Raise your hand. Don't, don't be so energetic, James. There's a police officer here. All right. I like knives. These are uh, gifts for my family. And there's, two of them are Damascus steel. Raise your hand if you know what Damascus steel is. Oh, you guys are awesome. We're friends immediately now. These are wonderful knives, aren't they? I love them. I don't ever take them out. But our Christianity game can kind of be like this. These knives. You know, we look at them. We endure it. Maybe we take them out once a week or so. We go and we show other people. Look at our, hey, don't touch. My Damascus steel knife. You want to be this kind of knife? Beautiful in a cave. You want to be this kind of knife? This knife can't cut butter. It's dinged up. My daughter makes fun of me because every time a package has to be opened, I go right here. 
I'm ready. This kind of knife gets used. You know, they say dam water feeds people. So if I'm standing on top of Hoover Dam, looking way down at the, but let's say, let's imagine it's full. And I look out there and I said, look at all that damn water. It's there. It's held by this dam and it's there because of this dam. This damn water feeds people. No, it don't. It just gets the sides and the bottom and the dam wet. When does it feed people? When it goes out. This kind of knife isn't very useful. Might be. Never tried it. This kind of knife is. But the river is like. You want to be this pocket knife in the pocket of Jesus? Be used? Be the river. Be the river. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for the fact that it's, it's you, not us. And Lord, I, I just want to tell you I love you. And I am amazed that you have communicated to me that you want a love relationship with me alone, not what I do. And you do that a billion times. Because everybody in this room, everybody that's watching, everybody that will see this video later, you want a relationship. And you want to apprentice them, us, all of us, to be that blessing not just receiving like a reservoir, but overflowing like a river. To love people the way you love because it's the way you have loved us. We give you thanks together. And it is in powerful and loving, loving name that I pray. Amen.